You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Well, then I want to invite you now, as is our custom, to open the Bible with me. We'll be in Matthew chapter 11. That is the first gospel, the first book of the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible or some device that will get you access to it, then you'll find a paperback Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. And we want to, in fact, make that our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. But don't be afraid of the table of contents in that. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with who Matthew is or what a gospel is, uh, we'll be in, uh, if, as you make your way through the table of contents, in the 11th chapter of the first book of the New Testament called Matthew. And it's the good news, literally the gospel, which is good news, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all that he taught and accomplished. And, and we have been walking through that since uh, even Christmas of last year. So, so here we are in the 11th chapter. I promise you things will start to speed up a little bit. Uh, as you'll see, the format starts to change in the way that Matthew has been telling the story. Now, I'll give you a recap very briefly. We've been introduced to the, to the miraculous birth of Jesus, and then there are several different ways to organize kind of your thoughts around the the layout of Matthew, uh, and, and the best way I've found of many that, that we've been sharing is there's kind of five major discourses. That is, there's these five moments where Jesus has some famous or important public declaration or teaching or instruction about himself, about his kingdom, about all these things that, that lead, a lot of, lead us to a lot of different questions. And if you, if you look at Matthew chapter 11, you'll see uh, Matthew's formula for that. And if you look at verse 1, it says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, this is common. Every time that Matthew stops telling us about or concludes telling us about this major discourse of Jesus, he gives us this little bookend and, and we're entered into kind of this next little chapter. And so here we are in, and you'll find in chapter 11 and chapter 12 a more dire tone, a more negative tone. After all, he just finished in the previous chapter sending out his disciples and he told them very bluntly, most people will reject you. Have no fear of them. Because after all, they can't do to you what, what God alone can do. And if you're going, you're going with me and with God. And if people receive you, they receive me and God who sent me. So the, the, the tone was serious, but now it gets more dire. And one of the things that Matthew has been doing is introducing us to Jesus by introducing us to people who respond in different ways to Jesus. And for the next couple of chapters, he's building up to parables of judgment and the end of history in chapter 13, by telling us stories of people who respond at best inappropriately or seem to misunderstand or respond in a way that, that leads Jesus to teach us or to point us to something different. Now, I'll take an aside here for, for just a moment. Um, when, I, when I get a chance to, to train and equip uh, people to preach, to, uh, to teach, to exposit the scriptures, um, I, give, I give them a warning that a mentor of mine gave to me. That is that when you're a rookie preacher, uh, your first two temptations will be, one, to try to preach your way through the most difficult text you can imagine, right? The thing that you're most confused about is the thing that you're like, all right, I'm going to preach my way through my confusion, right? And I warn rookie preachers, don't do that. The second thing is you tend to like uh, preach like a life verse or a passage of scripture that's so far out of context, not to say that God didn't speak that good thing to you in that way. That's just not what the text says, and so I encourage preachers not to do that. Now, I say that because Matthew chapter 11 is a passage of scripture that I have preached on more than any other passage because of that first one. 
so when I was first discerning a call to, to, to follow Jesus into vocational ministry to be a pastor, I didn't know what God had in, in store for me. When I was first doing that, the Lord saw fit to, at this period of time, I, I encountered different pastors, uh, different sermons, uh, and different articles, and different things I had read about Matthew chapter 11, and it messed me up. Uh, in many ways, uh, as a pastor, I've been leading Connection Church for the last eight years just kind of channeling all that God showed me. I remember even I was driving on a two-lane road in the middle of the night wrestling with God and my own sin, and there was a radio preacher preaching on Matthew chapter 11. I think you can still find that sermon. It's from like 1996. And so, I mean, like this, I have so many resources I would love to commend to you. All that to say, I want to invite you into what, for me personally, has been one of the most impactful and important passages of Scripture that I know of. And we'll spend the next at least three weeks over it, unless we just run out of time, in which case I'll go, sorry, let's do it a little longer, right? So I'm going to read to us now uh, verses 1 through 6, the beginning of many different responses to Jesus, starting with someone we've already been introduced to, John the Baptist, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Two of the most common responses that I hear from people who reject the claims of Jesus, or at very best, are wrestling with what it means to trust and believe in Jesus, and that may be you, two of the most common responses of very many go something like this. How can I believe in Jesus as long as there is fill-in-the-blank in the world? How can I believe that Jesus is who he says he is as long as there is, right, fill in the blank in my life presently? And typically it's like, how can I trust in Jesus? How can I believe that God is good if ultimately there is, right, this kind of suffering in the world? One of the second claims I hear is that Christianity and the claims of Jesus and the claims of Christians, the beliefs of Christians, are simply archaic and offensive, so the first one is, how can I believe in Jesus as long as, as, long as these are the circumstances? Right? How do I jive those, how do I make those things work together? And the second that I hear the most often is, how can I believe in Jesus with all of the offensive things that he says I am to believe? These things are archaic, they're out of date, right? What he says offends me, they're, uh, they're too conservative in who they restrict and they tend to exclude people that I really like. Or they're too liberal because 
of who Jesus welcomes. It's too inclusive of people that I don't like. In other words, some circumstances seem at odds to us with believing in Jesus as the creator, redeemer, and sustainer of the world. And then some things that Jesus says are just too offensive for us to accept. I can't believe in Jesus because blank suffering in the world or blank circumstance in my life. Or I can't believe in Jesus because his claims are disturbing, scandalous even, and offensive. And in this passage, Jesus addresses both. Both of them. Which gives us understanding into why and how we can relate to those questions as we hear them from others, but as they rise up inside of us. And so you see here, John sending someone to question Jesus. There'll be kind of two parts of this with kind of two themes. So you'll see two parts of these six verses that introduce us to the, to the rest of the section about John the Baptist and this interaction that Jesus has with him directly. And then as a result, you'll see in the next verses the interaction that Jesus starts to have with the people around him in light of what he says to John. So, so in this little passage of Scripture, these six verses, you have two parts, like the question of John to Jesus and then Jesus' response. And in them, I think, you'll think, I think you'll see two different themes. One, the theme of the one. And second, the offense. So we'll see the question of John, the idea of the one, this all-satisfying idea, and then the response of Jesus and the offense of Jesus. Because after all, one of those first questions that I mentioned, you see John saying, you send someone to him, Hey, Jesus, are you the one? After all, Jesus, in this case, has, has already said a lot of amazing things about John. And he'll say even more. John is the precursor of Jesus. And John is essentially saying, if this is the kingdom of God, then what am I doing here? And I want to pose that question to you as we dig into this first half as a question that, that I might invite you to say honestly, if you haven't already asked that, if, if this is the kingdom of God, if Jesus is who he says he is, or if Jesus is who you say he is, then why am I here? And insert in here whatever you want, right? Maybe geographically, why am I here, right? What am I doing here? Why am I here? Why is this my status? Why do I have these things in my life? So you see the question, We'll spend a little bit of time building that out and then walking through Jesus' response. First one, we get a context here. Jesus has finished instructing his 12 disciples, sending them out. He's going to be with them. He's going to, they're going to have hope, even though it will seem hopeless. And then it says he went on there from teach and preach in their cities. So it sets us up for the next few chapters as, as we get an introduction that's, as I said before, a negative tone. That it's a building up of the of, of this kind of interactions with Jesus until he gives us these pretty dark, stern parables in chapter 13. Because after all, at this point, the crowds have marveled, and then the religious leaders had said that he came from Satan. And we'll see more of that even. So the question, you see the circumstances of the question in verse 1. Uh, Jesus is going along, and John the Baptist's disciples in verse 2 or, uh, uh, are sent by John, who we just get just very cryptically, just a moment here. Now, we're going to find out more about John the Baptist in the next few chapters, chapter 14, I believe. But the other, dis other gospels tell us that John the Baptist came, as we saw in, in the very first, uh, it, when he first shows up in chapter 3. This is how Matthew introduces us to, to John the Baptist and speaks of Jesus. 
He says, I will baptize, or I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And listen to how John the Baptist describes Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is the quintessential fire and brimstone preacher. He comes in in stark contrast to many other people of the day. He comes in the tradition of the prophets. We'll hear more about this next week. But suffice to say, he's out in the wilderness, and he he answers a question we find later about the, the way that the king and his family are conducting their personal, relational, sexual, marital affairs. And that makes them very angry. So they throw John in prison. Now, I don't mind beating you to the punch. Matthew doesn't tell us much about, us, about it as it's happening, but he tells us later that John is later beheaded at the whim of a child of one of those family members. So John is in dire circumstances. That's the setting. And John, like many of us who are in dire circumstances, have questions. That was not always the case with John the Baptist. Many commentarians disagree on what exactly is going on here. Suffice to say that John the Baptist is asking Jesus questions about who he really is, and he's asking them in a fairly loaded manner. But in the meantime, it gives us some, I think, help and guidance. He had questions. He had doubts. Now, some people argue whether or not he was in full doubt or disbelief or unbelief or, or if he was just simply asking those questions for the benefit of his disciples. The truth is that Matthew doesn't tell us, and, and this is one thing that Matthew, Matthew's very specific about the things he includes and the things that he does not include. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to care. It's besides the point for Matthew. Matthew wants us to see John questioning and Jesus responding. John questioning, albeit from prison. But after all, John in the other Gospels, we already know, sees Jesus for who he is. In the Gospel of John, he's the first person to say to, about Jesus, behold, says to his disciples, who we even encouraged some of them to go and follow Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. We saw a few chapters earlier, the passage I just read, that he comes and he says that Jesus is the strong one. Jesus is the strong one who comes after me. He will come and do something by the power of the Holy Spirit that will be like fire among us. And now, even though he knew all these things about Jesus to be true, he had questions because of the difficulty of his circumstances. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation that was so difficult that the things you previously knew were true, previously that you could bank on, all of a sudden don't seem that certain. The certainty of a friendship, the certainty of a relationship, the certainty of a career, a job, an identity, right? The certainty of these things that seem like they're pretty solid, but when difficulty arises, all of a sudden you're not that certain. John had questions in light of his circumstances. John had deep questions. He wrestled with doubt. Now, aside here, I I don't mind speaking about what it means to to believe in Jesus and still face doubt. I know many of you might have been from a tradition, you know, a tradition that would call itself Christian that didn't 
have a, a category or language for doubt. To that, I would just say, we commend to you the whole book of Psalms. Uh, that is that like over a third of them are crying out to God in the midst of awful circumstances, like questioning God. God, how long? How long is this going to happen? When will you come and fix this, right? So, so maybe if you don't have a category for this, you'll see at least as a church why, why we regularly want to implore, implore these kinds of questions. Welcome them because Jesus did. And so in his difficulty, he had doubt. Now, I don't mind talking about doubt in the midst of faith because I know for many of you, that, that's just part of being human. And that's even the case if you're not a Christian. Here's what I would propose to you. Maybe if you come, you're like, I don't, I don't believe there's a God, but here's, here's the thing you and I both know. I've been there. I've been there in the position of doubt, right? In the same way that people of faith wrestle with doubt, people who are atheistic wrestle with faith. I've been there. Right? Even if you're like, I know this is true, I know who God is, and I know what he's done for me. Down deep, you're like, oh, when, when situations are difficult, right? You're like, is it true? In the same way that maybe if you're like, I, I, don't, I don't believe there is a God, I don't believe in the supernatural. Down deep, when, when, when no one's looking, you're also like, but maybe, but what about, right? And this is just the nature of being human. This is the nature of certainty and the ability to know things for sure as human beings. But, but we believe that because of sin, the Christian conviction is that because of sin, our ability to even know and understand and believe things is marred. And our ability to believe and trust in things is a gift of God's grace alone. John had questions, and so do we. We wrestle with doubt. That being said, doubters also wrestle with faith. I mean, John already showed us he didn't even fully understand the baptism of Jesus. Do you remember that? Jesus came to take the place of sinners, and he came to Jesus to be baptized. And what did John say? I, I can't baptize you. You ought to baptize me. Missing that Jesus was fulfilling some righteous imperative to take the place of sinners. There's no fault of John. This is a brand new kingdom. Several prophets in the Old Testament don't fully comprehend the content of their message in the moment. But what we find here is that in, Matthew tells us that something about what John heard in prison, it's not, it's not a casual, like, meaningless fact. He's in prison, and he wonders about Jesus. His circumstances caused him to doubt Jesus. And here's what I want to first contend to you about questioning Jesus. Acknowledge the difference between a circumstance-centered view of Jesus versus a Jesus-centered view of of circumstances. You have to start there. John was facing circumstances that caused him to believe something different about Jesus, rather than seeing and facing and trusting Jesus that caused you to understand something different about the circumstances. Don't miss that. In this sense, we often have an issue-centered view of Jesus rather than Jesus-centered view of our issues. I don't mind using the language of the Apostle Paul here. We often have a flesh-centered view of Jesus rather than a Jesus-centered view of our flesh. We have a world or earthly view of Jesus rather than a Jesus-centered view of the earth and of the world. Did you get it? One of them is primary and one of them is secondary. One of them is kind of a lens through which you understand the other. And John, it says here, apparently in prison, was in a circumstance that made him question Jesus. Again, at every turn that we, that we are asking these kinds of things, I don't mind stopping and pausing and saying, have you ever been there? 
Have you ever been in a circumstance that caused you to call into question something you know to be true? Now, it's speculation what really causes John's question. All we have is what Matthew tells us, is that evidently something about being in prison, his circumstance, his situation, it doesn't seem right, as John sees it, for the guy who's on the winning team. The second thing it's possible is that, as I quoted you from Matthew chapter 3, John came preaching fiery judgment. And that seems, as far as John is concerned, to be missing from Jesus. Up to this point, John had expectations of Jesus that Jesus did not yet meet. The third thing is that, did you hear how he refers to Jesus in verse 2? He sends this this message, and it says that John heard about the deeds of the Christ. That also is not an idle word. Matthew includes it here for a reason. This is the Jewish Messiah, and John, among many, probably had the understanding that the Messiah would come, not necessarily working miracles in the power of God, but that he would come and restore a national political identity. There would be a political national restoration, and it seems like The baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, which is what John was looking for, seems to look more like people heeding the call of Jesus to experience forgiveness and become a renewed remnant rather than restoring politically the nation of Israel. So, doubt. Your questions are welcome. Your questions are welcome. What we see here, not just the circumstances, but then you see where John takes the question and how he takes it to him. After all, he asks a loaded question. He asks a loaded question, but he does ask it in the right direction. This isn't new. There are dozens of different times that that the gospel writers tell us about people questioning Jesus or other Christians. Some scholars say that there are over uh, somewhere between 150 and 200 times that people question Jesus. However, there are over 300 times, depending how you count it, that Jesus questioned others. And here's the really trippy part that you'll find here. Some scholars would say that, depending on how you count, even though Jesus was asked over 150 questions, he only answers three of them directly. He always answers indirectly. And he does the same here. Did you hear that? Like, hey, are you the one to come? And he says, how about you tell John what you've seen and heard, right? Not yes, not no. Welcome to Jesus. He asks a loaded question. I wonder if you know what that means, a loaded question, right? We have loaded questions in our household. Uh, They sound like this from my perspective. I'm sure they sound different if you were not me, but from my perspective, they're things like, hey, do we want to take out the trash? (laughs) Notice that's not a question in the strict classical sense, that a, a question is a desire for information, is it? And, and a wise human would know the difference. That if you translate that, you don't answer, no, we, who is we, first of all, and no, we don't want to take out the trash. Don't do that. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> Instead, you read into it, you go, oh, that's, that more literally is take out the trash. I wonder if you have those kind of loaded questions when people kind of, hey, what do you think about that? But eh, it's, really, it's really not a question that anybody wants your input. It's a request, a command, an order even. And those are the kinds of questions that are often leveled at Jesus, and this is one of them. 
He says, are you the one? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? There's two things we see here. First, how, how we can take questions to Jesus, but second, I'm there in one slide here. They're supposed to be split up, so I'm going to put two points into one. The first one, you can take all your questions directly to Jesus. Pretend there's a slide break. Just ignore the bottom half of that, right? You can take all your questions to Jesus. The Psalms teach us this. The fact that so many questions are leveled at Jesus, and the gospel writers don't hide it, right? And even including the fact that he doesn't, he rarely answers them directly, And I think even as we walk through the Psalms, you remember kind of the wisdom there is like these things are inspired in Scripture because God knows what it feels like. God knows what it must be like to experience what we experience. God is not unaware and he welcomes those questions. Thank God he's not like us, right? If you could question me, oh man, I'm defensive, I'm going to fight, right? If we get questions, we, we respond badly, but God is good, merciful, and kind. You question him and he offers mercy and kindness. You can take all your questions to Jesus. In fact, many of the conversations I have with with many of you even might be frustrating because I'll say something like, after hearing whatever a person might be experiencing, I'll say something like, hey, have you told that to Jesus? And in that moment, I'm sure that's frustrating because I I want you to fix it. Like, yeah, maybe, but I I don't got it. Have you met Jesus? Have you told him? And that's one of the main things that we as Christians do. We go, yeah, you can take this to Jesus. You can take this to the Redeemer of the universe. He will hear. He will know an answer better than you or me. You can take any of your questions to Jesus. And here's a a tip. Don't leave him alone until he answers you. Beware. I don't know know the math here, but we're looking at, I don't know, roughly a handful of percent, depending how you count it, maybe three to five percent of the time, he'll answer you directly. But the majority of the time, he'll answer you with something that you didn't really know you needed answered. John had questions. He came to Jesus with those questions. But the way he came at them with a loaded question is also really helpful. I I included here in Luke chapter 23 a loaded question. A question of one of the criminals who was hanging beside Jesus and cries out a question. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Right, if, if John was saying, if this is the kingdom, why am I in prison? At least he asked the most important question, are you the one? Because most of us, including we see here examples in the New Testament, even the thief on the cross who, who ridiculed Jesus came and said, not are you the one, but if you're the one, what? Change my circumstances. If you're the one, show me that you're the one by bending my own circumstances. But look how John teaches us how to ask. He comes with the most important question, are you the one? Here's what I would contend for you. Every single one of us, every single moment of our existence is walking around with that yearning and that desire to know, is this it? Are you the one? The one, that is the, for him, the reason we exist, the reason all things work together, the thing that gives my life meaning, the thing that gives my life purpose, the thing that drives me, that motivates me. Every single one of us is walking around asking, where is the one? Where is that one thing? And you might deny that. You might not think that's a question. Now, I mean, you might not think that's a question that you ask. 
But here's the way you can discern this. What's the thing that you're most insecure about? What's the thing you're the most defensive about? What's the thing that no one has a right to say to you? What's the area of your life that no one has the privilege of speaking into? And what you'll find when you answer those questions is the one. The one guiding principle. The one thing you're living for. You don't even know it, maybe. Right? And one of the ways you know it is when, when, you, when you respond defensively and you dig in your heels on it. And you, and you take it very, very personally. Because it's not about an issue. It's about you and your meaning and your life, right? And so for some, I mean, here's, here's, here's the hard ones, right? If someone says, like, hey, I don't know that you're being as good a mom as you should be. Play a game on that one. What? Who are you to tell me how to parent? You hear it? Hey, I don't know that you're being the best father, right? Or, hey, I, I don't know... I don't know that you're, you're performing as well as you ought to in your work. Or if someone was just to say like, hey, you're not as successful as you'd probably like to be. Or have you thought about your reputation? Anytime someone would come with like a, a criticism, even, even a constructive, helpful criticism, if you find yourself responding defensively, personally, friend, you found the one. Hey, why aren't you married? Hey, why is your marriage not what you wished it would be? Why aren't you achieving all the things? Would you hear it? Do you feel it? They cut deep. Why? Because down deep, we think that's who we are. That's the one. And John gives us a model for how to ask the right questions to Jesus. Rather than to level at him an accusation, hey, if you'll give me this thing, then I'll trust you. He just says, look, if you're the one, then that changes everything. Take your questions to Jesus, but make sure you take genuine questions. Because after all, if you come to Jesus with conditions, then you don't really want answers. Ask Jesus about your circumstances. By all means, right? Cast all your cares on him. But the minute you look at Jesus and say, basically, if you don't fix these circumstances, I don't trust you and you're not any good, then you've found the one. You've seen the one. John gives us a model for this, and Matthew includes it. Not just, are you the one, but then he uses the word we. And anytime Matthew uses the words we, he's, it's a loaded we almost every time. Are you the one, the one that would give meaning to all these things that are happening to me? Right, the one that would explain my circumstances, or shall we look for another? So here's the second part of that I would contend to you. Notice, notice John isn't asking, are you the one or is there no one? Right? Are you the source of meaning and explanation for all things in the universe, or is there none? He doesn't give that option. He seems to imply pretty explicitly here that if we don't find the one, the meaning, the satisfaction we long for in Jesus, we will look for it elsewhere. And as I share with you, it will be the place where you're the most sensitive, the most, the most insecure, the most defensive, the things you will take the most personally are wrapped up in that. And every one of the things we bring to Jesus as conditions show that we don't know who Jesus really is. 
We're, we're called to understand ourselves in light of Jesus, not the other way around. So let me give you some examples of this. Ones I, I hear regularly, and even if I didn't hear from other people, we'll start with the worst ones, the most difficult ones, the things that like, as Christians, we need a lot of grace, but we have really good answers to some of these, but I hear this all the time, right? Hey, you know, before I come to Jesus, what does Jesus say about gender and sexuality and marriage? Or maybe someone will say like, hey, what does Jesus have to say about my marital status? Or maybe someone will say like, hey, what does Jesus have to say about my life choices? What does Jesus have to say about blessing in my career? What does Jesus have to say about my family? And notice, in every single one of these kinds of questions, we are seeking to measure Jesus by our own claims and beliefs rather than measuring our claims by the Redeemer and Sustainer of the universe. In each one of those questions, we assume we already know how our life is supposed to work out. We already know how to be Lord over all of our circumstances. We already know how things are supposed to go. And then we're looking for someone like Jesus to simply stamp it. We talk about this in a gospel community setting and, and in leadership in a local church as the difference between counsel and approval. Counsel is when you, in humility and teachability, come to a person wondering what you ought to do next, hoping that the Holy Spirit and through teachability and humility, you'll know your next steps. People don't do that. Approval is when you have already made up your mind, you already know what you want to do, and you're just looking for people to endorse it. Heard that? And notice, those are the kinds of things we often come, that's what the thief came to Jesus with. I already know how this is supposed to work out. Prove it. And just notice, one pastor I heard say it this way, John isn't trying to get us to be spiritual here. He's trying to get us to be sensible here. If Jesus is who he says he is, then everything else we believe and all the claims we might bring are now changed. They're different. If he is the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the universe, then there's no sense telling Jesus. Because notice the question from the cross there isn't a question at all. It's an order. And instead of saying, thank God, John doesn't say, if you're the one, set me free. He says, are you the one? Because if you're the one, then everything else will make more sense. Now, let me appeal to you for just a moment here. If you're like, no, I don't live that way. I don't, I don't actually look for meaning in some of these things. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that way. And I want to tell you, even like, if you're like, I don't, li- I don't have this one thing that owns me, that I'm a slave to, that I serve with all of my life. Let me just explain to you this human condition. Why he says we will inevitably look for the one. If it's not in Jesus, we'll look to it someone else. And here's the best one, because it's the most public, romance. I want to give to you some cheesy, oh, incredibly cheesy, desperate lyrics of love songs from people who are not Christian. We'll start with the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, Bonnie Tyler, Total total Eclipse of the Heart. I need you now tonight. I need you more than ever. And if you'll only hold me tight, then we'll be holding on forever. And we'll only be making it right because we'll never be wrong. Together we can take it to the end of the line. 
Your love is like a shadow on me all the time. All of the time. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I'm always, I mean, this is gut-wrenching, right? We're living in a powder keg and giving off sparks. Once upon a time, I was falling in love, but now I'm only, fa- I'm going to start weeping right now. Once upon a time, I was falling in love, but now I'm only falling apart. There's nothing I can do. Do you hear it? It's not a Christian. That's a person who's found the one. When I learned from my father, Chicago, also from the late 70s, early 80s, you're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. You bring feeling to my life. I mean, if that's not good enough, the late 70s, early 2000s, these were pretty formative for me. Savage Garden in 1997 says that I knew I loved you before I met you. There's, no, there's just no rhyme or reason, only a sense of completion. And in your eyes, I see the missing pieces I'm searching for. I think I've found my way home. I know that it might sound more than a little crazy, but I, leave, but I believe I loved you before I met you. I dreamed you into life. Also late 90s, in sync. I'm trying to appeal to as many people or offend as many people as possible. Your love is like a river, peaceful and deep. Your soul is like a secret that I never could keep. Listen to this. In all of creation, okay, in sync. <laughs> all right, all right, boy band. Tell us more about your wisdom. Of, okay, anyway, they didn't write it, I'm sure. In all of creation, I'm not, I don't know, I'm trashing them. No shade to NSYNC, I love NSYNC. In all of creation, all things, great and small, you are the one that surpasses them all. <laughs> I, saw, I don't know, if you're picturing NSYNC, it's like, I don't take this seriously. <laughs> more precious than any diamond or pearl, they broke the mold when you came into the world. And I'm trying hard to figure out just how I ever did without the warmth of your smile. The heart of a child that's deep inside leaves me purified. And if the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and 2000s, you're like, okay, geezer, all right, this one's from Harry Styles, late night talking. (laughs) We've been doing all this late night talking about anything you want until the morning. Now you're in my life. I can't get you off my mind. Listen to this. I've never been a fan of change, but I'd follow you any place. If it's Hollywood or Bishopsgate, I'm coming too. Now, none of these songs were written by Christians. And so if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you have deep questions about Christianity, I want you to see this for what it is. This is what the human heart will do. And maybe, right, Maybe you're in this room and you're like, well, I'm, I'm above that, right? I'm, not, I'm, I'm immune to that kind of sentimentality. I'm, I'm more stoic. Well, here, that's your one. That's your thing. The need to feel like you're above the fray. And yours makes a lousy love song, but it's probably like, oh, stoicism. You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. Right? You keep feeling from my life, I guess it would be. You're, you protect me from inspiration. Hey, it's not... But like, these are not Christians. These are not, right? Notice, none of these have a religious or spiritual intent, and yet they cannot avoid eternal, infinite spiritual language when they talk about the thing, the one, the thing they're longing for. They're not worship to the God of the universe. 
They're just a reflection of how we go looking for the one that will satisfy us. And this isn't romance, but maybe your love song is for your work, your achievement, your reputation. Right? Maybe your love song, right? Maybe it's for your family. It's some sort of status, some sort of appearance. I don't know what it is. But nothing else matters until you answer that question that John asked Jesus, are you the one? And once it is answered, then nothing else matters. Nothing else at all. And when you come to Jesus with conditions, then you don't really want answers. But when you come to Jesus saying, I I trust you to know how the world will and should work out, then something amazing happens. You actually get the answers. Maybe not to the questions you were looking for, but you get the real answers. And Jesus offers himself as the satisfying answer. Now, here's the second part, the offense. And I might not even have to tee it up because you might have already heard it, right? Like, you're, you're telling me that Jesus will satisfy these things? You're telling me that Jesus is the meaning in my life, right? You're, you're telling me that Jesus is the one who, who dictates how I view gender, sexuality, politics, relationships, family, you fill in the blank, all of the universe, every last molly. You're telling me that Jesus is the one, and I, and I have to let go of all of my questions, I have to let go of all of my concerns and look to him, and what's your first response? This is, what our, this is the golden age of this one. That's offensive. And here's the cool part. Jesus is like, yep, absolutely. What Jesus brings first is an offense. And look at how he said, like, if if the first part is John's question, Jesus' response to him desiring the one is offensive. He starts to quote roughly, but not perfectly, at least two different parts of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 61, I commend that to your reading, and Isaiah 35. Did you hear what he says? He says, look, Are you the one? And he says, tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. And then he gives a recap of all the things we've been talking through the last few chapters, doesn't he? Blind people are being healed. Lame people are walking. Lepers, outcasts are being included. Deaf come uh, to, to be able to hear. And even dead people are raised up. The poor have good news preached to him. People who are hopeless, needy, who are desperate, are finding what they're looking for, and they're given new hope because of Jesus. And he says, go look, tell. In this sense, these promises of Isaiah are being fulfilled, and then he concludes with this beatitude. Blessed, weird beatitude, different than the ones we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the one who's not offended by this. God is inaugurating this kingdom in Christ that fulfills these promises that doesn't look like everybody wished it would. Now, you know how to do this, right? When someone says to you, no offense, but, I want to say we all know, but maybe you don't, and this is a good moment for you. We all should know what comes next, right? And and I talk about this regularly. It's a a part of self-deception we use, like, no offense, but, and then what are we? Offensive, right? It's like when someone says, like, I'm not normally one to complain, but, oh, yeah, I guarantee you that's not true. No one thinks that's about you, right? So what does Jesus do here? Now, he's kind, and, and now from now on, maybe you won't say no offense, but you'll just say, hey, blessed, on the one, blessed, <laughs> blessed is the one who isn't offended by what I'm about to say. 
But, it, but at least we're honest about the fact that you're going to be offensive. Because that's what Jesus is. You don't say no offense unless you're going to be offensive. And so he concludes this explanation and this invitation for John's disciples. Look and see what's going on. And he says, by the way, when you see what's happening, a real blessing comes through the offense. From seeing the offense. Now, I already kind of teed it up like the offensive statement that Christ is the satisfying element. Christ is the unifying principle in the universe. And here's the thing. Is, did you hear that? Like, are you the one or, you know, or should we look for someone else? Here's the thing. When Christ is the satisfying element in your life, there's no need to look for something else. And so for many of you, whatever you're holding on to, whatever seems like, and, and they're valid things. John was in prison, right? No one would scoff at that. If, if you came be like, hey, man, I got sentenced to life in prison. They're going to kill me and they'd behead me. I, like, only a jerk would be like, oh, well, right? This is a valid concern. And yet notice, if Christ is who he says he is, then these other things start to make sense. These other concerns and questions we have start to fall into place. John was slow to read the evidence. And again, it might be because he was expecting Jesus to come just laying people out, right? Maybe he just thought right off the bat, instead of just offering mercy to the weak, he was going to be a strong savior. It's going to wipe out and reset Israel into the kind of like a, a golden age. And yet, what did he do? He seems to say, you want this nation here and now? right? You want your nation right now, right here? And what does Jesus say? Oh no, I've come for all the nations, for all time, all generations, all people. Do you get it? He's going to bring all of these things comprehensively into his kingdom. And John was slow to read the evidence, and we are too. We want him to come and bring our kingdom. But friend, when you want Jesus to come and bring your kingdom, who does that imply is the real king? It might have been that John said, I, I, the offensive thing, I, I don't want someone who's weak coming for the weak. That is offensive. And he says, look at the signs. Realize what this kingdom is like. After all, no one expected Jesus to come along and say some of the things that he did. Right? In other of the Gospels, he, he comes and says, like, before Abraham, thousands of years before, I am, like, taking on the name of God. He even makes statements like, I've been sending prophets to you. Um, do you like, I, imagine if I said that, like, yeah, I've been, I've been sending prophets for thousands of years to you. You'd be like, whoa, who are you, right? And he says these incredibly infl inflammatory things. After all, Jesus did not get hung on the cross by telling people what they wanted to hear. Quite the opposite. And so we're supposed to embrace the offense. We're supposed to see it, wrestle with it. And so, friend, if you're in this room and you're wrestling with the claims of Jesus because they seem absurd and crazy, the word offense here is literally the word scandal, like to scandalize. Uh, the King James, I think, talks about to, like to turn away. But the idea is that you would be so scandalized that you would, you'd have to turn away from it. You're familiar with this. This is, this is what happens. Like, this is kind of, we don't have a really good, strong view of atonement, forgiveness, or restoration in our culture. So the best thing we can come up with is just like dismissing people. 
right? So if someone is in a scandal, the best we can do is like, all right, like cancel them or just dismiss them because we don't know what to do with them. We don't know how to forgive or restore someone. That's crazy, right? So you know this. And he's saying real blessing comes when you see the scandal for what it is and yet don't dismiss it. He says, look at the signs. Here's what I'm going to encourage you as we wrap up. Jesus says, look at the signs and see the blessing in the offense. See it through the offense. Look at the signs. Did you hear what he says? People are getting their lives changed. People who are down and out. People who are hopeless. Now here's one of the offensive scandals. I have spent most of my life trying to not be on that list of people in the first few verses. I have spent most of my energy trying not to be needy, trying not to be helpless, trying not to be hopeless. I have spent most of my time, most of my energy trying to avoid failure, trying to avoid being ostracized by people. But notice, the offense is that 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 list, the hopeless, the needy, the weak, the poor, that's who Jesus came to redeem. And it is those who realize their need. It is those who turn from their self-sufficiency, who turn from trying to rule and master their own lives. It is those who turn from rebelling against God's ways and any number of things. And we turn from these things and we get included on a list of what? The people that Jesus comes to restore. The people that Jesus comes to heal. And if you're like me and you've spent most of your time trying to avoid this list, then you're going to spend most of your time missing out and the restoration that Jesus brings. Look at the signs. Look around. Ask her. That's what I would say even as a church. When we value these questions and we value this kind of scandal and all we do is point to the signs. Ask around. It's impossible to overstate some of the darkness that God has brought some of you through or is bringing some of you through right now. The fact that you're sitting here and are conscious is a miracle. It's a miracle. You may not want to admit it, but it is a masterful miracle. Some of you have endured abuse, neglect, and Jesus is bringing you out of it. Addiction, pride, greed, self-righteousness, rebellion, rebelliousness, pornography, fornication, adultery, atheism, religiosity, and self-righteousness. It is impossible to overstate the darkness that Jesus comes into and brings light. Just ask around, and you'll see the stories of our church are the stories of people who are once hopeless, down and out, <laughs> who are not. Now, a warning to you, if you're new to Connection Church and you see how kind of joyful people are, don't let that fool you. That's just, that's just what Jesus has given us after or through the mess, okay? Don't let that fool you into thinking there's no mess. And, and woe to the people who try to cover the mess. Just hang around long enough and Jesus, well, he does what Jesus does. Ask around. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then you'll hear something like Jesus described. People who were down and out and without hope now have these things because Christ brought them. Listen and see who Jesus is and what he's done and what he continues to do. He didn't come as a megalomaniac to bring together sycophants and other famous, important people. He doesn't only hang out with the rich and the powerful. He comes to the broken, to the needy. And he does it even now. 
He comes to the people looking down deep, even in places they don't want to admit, for the one. Look around. Ask around. People in this room believing and and are changed by their faith. Jesus enters in and marriages are being put back together in this room. Lives are being restored in this room. Hard-headed narcissists are becoming servant-hearted and gentle in this room. Terrified skeptics are becoming trusting and loving in this room. Receive the blessing. See the scandal and yet do not be scandalized. Because lastly, the scandal and its offense is actually what makes the blessing so great. That Jesus brought us eternal blessing through the scandal of the cross. The Apostle Paul goes on to say that it's a stumbling block. It's something that keeps people from seeing something great because it's beyond their scope of understanding. Because after all, the scandal of your sin and mine is what makes the blessing of God's acceptance and forgiveness so majestic. How not to be scandalized by something that is so scandalous? There's a paradox of not being alienated by something that is alienating. And yet in the gospel, we have this. Right? Uh, Ephesians 5 will come along and tell us things like the days are evil. Right? That's scandalous, right? If I told you, I'm just thinking how that would affect your life. I was like, hey, tomorrow, just want you to know it's going to be evil. Full of evil, evil everywhere you look, right? And yet, because of the gospel, what? We we see the scandal, and we hear the blessing through it. That even though that is true, we need not fear because Jesus is with us, and he won't leave us. Hear the blessing of the gospel through its scandal. The world is full of sin. It's broken, But yet, because of the grace of God in Christ, these alienating realities no longer alienate us. Our natural response to evil days would be to stockpile, stay home, stock up on food and weapons or whatever, right? Or blankies, I don't know. And yet, in the gospel, you and I behold that in the midst of the alienating reality of evil in the world and in our own hearts, and even the days of the world, what do we do? We rest, we hope. We trust. We trust in Jesus to step into the world, even all of its evil days, with the good news of the gospel on our lips. Hear the scandalous truths. You and I are dead in our sin. What you and I have done and what you and I have believed is not worthy of a perfect and righteous God. And yet through that is what? A tremendous blessing. And when we are not scandalized by that truth, we begin to accept the blessing of the gospel. You are dead in your sin, but guess what? Jesus is a friend of sinners, and he has come to make those who are dead in their sin alive in him. He's a friend of sinners. He's a healer of the brokenhearted. He's an encourager to the hopeless. Sure, yes, I am a sinner. However, it is also gloriously true that Jesus is a friend of people like me. So friend, come to Jesus with your questions. Come to him, knowing that he's the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer of the universe. Be willing to have your paradigm shift from an issue-centric view of Jesus to a Jesus-centric view of your issues. Come to him with your questions. Come to him with your longing for satisfaction. Be honest about your desire, and you will find something amazing. He is the one. Let's pray and thank God for that together. 
Jesus, thank you so much that you, you are so kind to the skeptic. You are so welcoming to the, those who are doubting, or even at the very least, you are so receptive to those who have questions. Thank you for this story and introduction of, of John and his disciples. And thank you that we are invited to come to you with all of your questions. Thank you that you are not like we are. You are not attacked or offended by these questions. But instead, you give yourself as the answer. If there's some in this room that are maybe finding the, the person of Jesus and his claims and his, his work to be unbelievable, would you begin to even now inspire their imagination? They would begin to imagine what it would look like to be deeply satisfied, to be answered in the most powerful way, a way that has eternal, infinite ramifications. Might you turn those questions into faith? Maybe for some of us, we just regularly wrestle with the doubts that come from pursuing and trusting in lesser things. We experience doubt because life is hard. We, exp- we have questions for you because the things that we are facing don't look like your kingdom. Would you come to us now with comfort? Help us to see the signs, to look around, and see the blessing that comes through the offense of the cross. That you came as a weak and weary and lowly Savior to come and gather up, to bind up the broken, and to give hope to the hopeless. Might we be those this morning those who find hope, rest, comfort, even joy and satisfaction in all that you offer us through your life and death and resurrection. We want to receive that now by faith as we respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.